to be very frank, I wasn't a great developer. I think a lot of people struggle with realizing what they're good at and what they're great at. So I was good, but I wasn't great. I was never going to be a phenomenal developer. But number two, I just really didn't like working at a big company. I had very little impact. If I disappeared the next day, nobody would know. What business you end up building is never going to be your initial idea. No one who like takes a shower and a light bulb goes off and comes up with this great idea and then go builds exactly that and millions of people come in and use it. That's not how startups work. What works is you don't really know what you have. You're not making any money. Your friends are looking at you like, what are you doing? <laughs> Now, I know this is a long story, but this is kind of really interesting. So for the first six months to a year, we actually didn't have much traction at all. So I was working at My name is Hussein. I am based in Toronto. I currently run a company called Snap Travel. And Snap Travel allows you to book a hotel room over Facebook Messenger and SMS. So it's a conversational commerce experience. There's been a lot of hype around bots recently, falls somewhat into that category. So when you start chatting with Snap Travel, you can be chatting with a bot, you can be chatting with a live human agent. And we also use kind of web UI interface elements. So when you combine the bot, the human, and the web, we create a conversational experience. And it's as easy as messaging a friend. Mostly people are using you to find the best hotel deals? Yeah, people are using it to find the best hotel deals, but it's more than just finding the best deals. It's also about convenience. So it's also about people used to use travel agents, right? So they would go and call a travel agent or walk into a travel agent and try and to book their travel. But the frustrating part is to actually physically walk in or pick up the phone and call. So in a way, we're a travel agent over messaging. So in addition to getting good hotel deals, we also offer a level of service. One of the things we do is for every booking we make, we actually have one of our agents call the hotel the morning of, make sure all your special requests are taken care of and try and negotiate a free upgrade. So then you get a message that morning that says, hey, Austin, we know you're checking in today. By the way, we called in and got you upgraded to a suite. What would be like the difference between y'all and Priceline? I'm just trying to make it simplistic for anyone who's understanding because you were talking about travel agents. I'm not sure I ever used one. I think maybe it's more of our parents. And then we kind of got into the, okay, go online, search and try to find the best hotel deal that way. So what differentiates y'all? Yeah, so this is kind of a combination of the two. You're right. Most people in the new age have never really used a travel agent. And that's because there's been so much friction to use one. I mean, people like to feel empowered that they can go online and do it themselves. So this is kind of a hybrid of the two. So you still have the ability to kind of just chat with a bot, use the UI, find your own hotel deals. But when you do want customer service or you do want to chat with a human, you have the ability to do that pretty easily. And it kind of is a very new concept. And for someone who hasn't used it, they are a bit skeptical. They're like, why would I do this instead of just going to Priceline or trying to kind of do it myself? And one, we do have access to really good hotel deals, which obviously helps. And then two, you'll see how easy it is to just get customer service and chat with a human when it's necessary. So for example, let's just say you're looking at a specific hotel online and you want to know if the pool is heated or you want to know how many steps away from the beach it is. Right now, you can spend a lot of time Googling, reading TripAdvisor reviews. Maybe you have to call the hotel yourself. But with Snap Travel, you can just click chat with an agent. You can ask them a question. They'll call the hotel, get you an answer and message you right back. Pretty fast, pretty instant. And once you get used to it, you'll see it's just a much easier way to book a hotel room. It's all done through Facebook Messenger? Available right now on Facebook Messenger and SMS, so for text messaging. It's also available on Viber and Slack, but most of our volume comes from Facebook Messenger. So there's no app at all, right? 
No app to download. Yeah. So that's the other benefit, right? People don't want to download apps anymore. And even from actually a business perspective, it's really, really expensive to get someone to download an app. We used to be able to buy app installs for 50 cents or a dollar. Now, if you want to get someone to click on your ad, install the app, open the app, remember to open the app, we're talking 10 to $15 per app install. And that's just pretty lucrative and expensive. With what we do, we can take out an ad, let's say on Facebook, and when you click on it, it doesn't take you to the app store to download an app. It just deep links you right into Facebook Messenger and you can start chatting and start searching right away. Which Facebook would obviously love too because you're keeping them on the platform. Exactly. So Facebook wants to maximize the time that users spend within their apps and within their platform. So they actually want Facebook Messenger to be more like WeChat and they want people to use Facebook Messenger to do everything. So not just chat with humans, but also to chat with businesses, to chat with services, to buy things, to do everything within Facebook Messenger. And why are people using less apps? I think there's a lot of app fatigue. There could be a number of reasons. First, some people just don't know how to free up space on their phone. Two, there's this perception and some reality that downloading more apps slows down your phone. And then three, it's just a lot of work. People are super lazy. So it's a lot of work for something that may be infrequent. I mean, if you're using Uber all the time and getting rides all the time, yeah, you'll download the Uber app because that's something that you probably use quite frequently. Or maybe you'll download Spotify if you really like music. But for something like travel, you're probably traveling the average person once or twice a year. And is it really worth downloading an app just to run a search? for a hotel, that doesn't really make any sense. It's not worth the effort, especially when you don't know if you're actually going to get a good hotel deal or what the experience is going to be like. Because I struggle with the idea, there's some apps that maybe have a developer or through my hosting service do, they're like, have your own podcast app. But I'm like, less and less people are downloading apps. I really kept trying to look at the stats on how much it would increase downloads and it seemed very minimal at best. And I mean, if I'm just looking forward in a couple more years, I'm kind of feeling your way where people just don't feel like doing it anymore. It's kind of seemed like it's been phased out. I mean, I haven't looked at the stats on it. I just felt like you might have a better thought process behind why people are downloading it less. Like you said, people, I guess, were scared of it slowing down your phone, which is similar to a computer. But also, if you have Apple iPhone, that's also Apple slowing down your phone. That's it. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know if we've actually talked to a chat bot person, but this is kind of the future wave as we see as technology, because it's even simpler to communicate and there's less stuff going on your phone like you're discussing, right? So was this done on purpose? What was your thought process behind incorporating into Messenger? Yeah, sure. I'll give you a bit of the background story. My background story. So this is my second company. My first company was a company called Ad Parlor, which was a Facebook ad optimization company. We work with brands like Starbucks and Netflix and Groupon, and we help them manage their ad spend. We managed over $100 million of ad spend, did quite well in that business, ended up selling it to Ad Knowledge. It was a great acquisition. It was a completely bootstrapped company. And then I actually took some time off, traveled the world, did some volunteer work, and then wanted to start another company. So even though I didn't really have to, it is something I'm passionate about. And I knew I was still young and I knew I had the energy. So I said, okay, let me start a new company. So I actually moved out to San Francisco and myself and my co-founder, Henry, we were iterating on business ideas. We were using a book called Running Lean by Ash Moria. That's a super exciting book. Everybody should read it if they're trying to figure out how to start a company or what they want to do. And essentially at a high level, it just taught us how to really quickly iterate through business ideas. So Henry and I were in San Francisco, we were hustling, we were talking to customers, talking to investors, we were just trying out many different business ideas. And in this process, we ended up 
having lunch with ex-CEO of Hotels.com. His name's Scott Booker. But we're having lunch and we're just talking about business ideas and talking about travel ideas. He actually came up with a travel idea. It was kind of a reverse bidding system. And so we built it. We had this process where we would very quickly build websites, buy ads, and drive traffic to the site and see what happens. So we built this idea that Scott Booker had was kind of a reverse bidding system website. But on that same page, we had a contact us link. And what we saw is that no matter what we built, there was still a good percentage of people who clicked on contact us and would just email us as if we were a travel agent. They would say, hey, me and my friends are going to New York. Can you find me a hotel? And it was really odd, but people seemed to want the travel agent experience. So we thought about this, and this was around the same time that Facebook Messenger launched their API. They launched the Messenger API, and we said, okay, let's bring these two things together. Let's give people the ability to contact us as if we're a travel agent, but let's just do it over Facebook Messenger because Messenger just launched. I was talking about bots. Let's see how this works. And when we got started, it was 100% human. So it was literally myself and Henry. People would message us. We would sit there on our phones. We would message them back, and then if they wanted some hotels, we would go on hotels.com or Expedia and we would look up hotels and we would send them pictures and then it would work. They would send us their credit card and we would book hotels for them on these public websites. And it was pretty odd because we had the same pricing. We had a really slow service. It was really crappy, but still people wanted to book hotels over messaging. So that's kind of how it started. And then from there, we went on and kind of raised some money and continued to grow. How about we talk about, because I don't want to overbrush your first company, because in and of itself, I mean, we can spend the last half probably talking a little bit more about Snap Travel, but why don't we reel back a little bit further to when you graduate? Are you from Canada? Yeah, so from Canada, born and raised in Toronto. Richmond Hill, actually, is where my parents grew up. And I went to Waterloo, did computer science, learned how to code, did a few co-op positions. So the Waterloo co-op program is absolutely phenomenal. I'm not sure how much you know about it or how much your listeners know about it. But the Waterloo Co-op program essentially allows you to work and go to school and kind of rotate every four months. So graduating from Waterloo, I had experience at Microsoft and IBM and Bell Canada and all these great companies. And then when I graduated, I actually decided to take a job full-time at Bell Canada as a software developer. So I was at Bell Canada. I was a developer for two years, and I realized that I really don't like what I'm doing. To be very frank, I wasn't a great developer. I think a lot of people struggle with realizing what they're good at and what they're great at. So I was good, but I wasn't great. I was never going to be a phenomenal developer. But number two, I just really didn't like working at a big company. I had very little impact. If I disappeared the next day, nobody would know. It wouldn't make any impact to my team, maybe my team, but definitely not the business as a whole. So after doing that for two years, I knew I wanted to do something else. And I was kind of in this almost like career crisis or life crisis where I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I applied to a bunch of MBA schools. I signed up for some volunteer work programs. I ended up taking a leave of absence. So I left Bell Canada for three months and I did this crazy kind of trip. And I went to Africa and I lived in the village near Mombasa for two months. And we were helping local youth with learning about HIV AIDS and a whole bunch of interesting things. I climbed Kilimanjaro, which is very cliche, but that was an unbelievable experience. And I did all these things. And then I came back to my job at Bell Canada and it made me realize even more how meaningless my position was. It was like, I did something so meaningful. I come back and I just couldn't do it anymore. 
So after that moment, I knew I had to make a change. I knew I didn't want to work for a big company. I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And at that time, that's, again, my career has kind of been built off of Facebook, but that's when Facebook started to allow third-party developers to build on the platform. So this is before a lot of people's days, but companies used to build desktop Facebook apps. So the most common example of that is Farmville. So people would log on to Facebook, they would install the Farmville app, and then they would play Farmville within Facebook. So at that time, I was still at Bell Canada as a developer, and I was like, okay, well, on the side, let me build an app. So I built a couple of apps, and there was an intern who was there. His name was Chris Dops, and he started to build some apps as well, and we started chatting. And we were like, okay, well, we have these apps. How do you make money off your app? And we decided to build an ad network, which would allow apps to promote other apps within Facebook. Sounds very niche, but it was actually quite a big market. So these big companies were building all these games and they were looking to drive traffic to their apps. And we built this like in-app network and we knew nothing about ads. We knew nothing about an ad network, but we just did it. And it started by being a very simple ad network. It was ads for my app promoting Christoph's app and ads on Christoph's app promoting my app. And that was it. And then slowly, we just started to hustle and get more and more advertisers and publishers on the network. And we ended up building a pretty significant display ad network. Now, I know this is a long story, but this is kind of really interesting. So for the first six months to a year, we actually didn't have much traction at all. So I was working out of my parents' basement. He was working out of his parents' house. We were trying to build this ad network. It was somewhat working. It really wasn't working, actually. We weren't too sure what to do and how to really build a business. And then there was this amazing opportunity through the Canadian government where they would help relocate us to Silicon Valley. And for me, at that time, at that age, Silicon Valley was a very mysterious place. It was something I just read about online and people talked about Silicon Valley. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to take the leap of faith and I'm going to go move out there. So the Canadian government helped to pay for some office space in this great incubator called the Plug and Play Center in Sunnyvale. They helped with a few other things, but it wasn't really about the cost. The money wasn't really an issue, but it was just that extra push I needed to go and move out there. So I moved out to Palo Alto. And interestingly enough, I was looking for a place to live and I was on Craigslist and I found this one place and looked pretty cool. This guy had an Xbox and a leather couch. And I was like, okay, this is awesome. Let me call him. So I called him and I said, hey, I'm from Toronto. I run this Facebook ad network. I'm looking to move to Palo Alto. And he goes, oh, that's interesting. I work at Facebook. I'm an ad sales guy. So I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm moving in. And he's like, well, I have someone coming to see the place tomorrow as well. I was like, you know what? Forget that guy. I'm going to send you money right now. I'm moving in. And that's kind of a really, really lucky break I had. So I moved in to Palo Alto with this Facebook ad sales guy. And I learned a ton about how Facebook advertising works. And it really changed our business. So over time, we actually moved from a display ad network to actually getting access to the Facebook ads API, which meant that we could programmatically buy ads on Facebook. So at that time, there was no such thing as mobile Facebook. There was no such thing as Facebook newsfeed, but there were ads in the right-hand column. And we had the ability then to automatically create ads, delete ads, change bids, do a few certain things. And because I lived with this Facebook ad sales guy, because we had some early experience and traction with the display ad network, we were one of the first companies to get access to the Facebook ads API. It's really insightful. So as soon as you said you were setting up the Patreon, it was just like, yeah, I'll help this guy. You know, I take a lot of value from it. You know, it's as simple as that. Yeah, I really appreciate that, man. Well, I was going to say, have you checked out our newest Patreon episode? Yeah, I was just like, oh, well, I'm in the car. I'll just listen to it, whatever. But I'm not getting anything out of this. And then you're like, wow, I'm not that naive or anything, but it really did open your eyes. Appreciate you doing the call here. Yeah, 
Favorite podcast by far. I love it. Oh, yeah? Why is that? So I graduated 2017 from Michigan. I heard that shout out the other day. That was pretty cool. Basically, two months after I graduated, I started listening to the podcast. Loved it. I think there were maybe 30 episodes or something out by that point. And I consider myself to be pretty entrepreneurial. Started a business last year. This helped a ton. It's hard, I think, to find entrepreneurs. I was just looking for entrepreneurial meetups. And I think, wow, this is more of an awesome opportunity to talk with other entrepreneurs. The value is, I mean, it's insane. Like people make these types of entrepreneurial insight things are thousands of dollars. This is 12 per month, but one per month is like nothing. Before you moved from Canada, I imagine that you had quit your job. Oh yeah. A month or two into starting Ad Parlor and kind of doing that, I realized I need to do this full time and quit my job. Yeah. And how many months was that after your trip back from Africa? That was about three months after. That seems like total opposite perspectives of traveling to such a remote place, right? And helping people then back to where you were sitting at a computer. So you were only there a couple more months and then you're starting Ad Parlor on the side. Yeah. And then that's when you kind of transitioned and saw some future with Ad Parlor. And was it called Ad Parlor at the time? Yeah, it was Ad Parlor. You were still in your parents' basement. Did you leave your buddy behind in Canada? Yes, I actually left him behind. Again, we still weren't too sure what we really had or what we were doing. So I moved out there and he stayed there. Christoph stayed with his parents, but he was mostly coding anyways. And I was out there trying to hustle and do the biz dev and trying to talk to people. But it was amazing. Like Silicon Valley, it's a magical place. And I've been there now, I would say over the past 10 years, I probably lived there for at least two or three years on and off. First of all, the odds that I would move to Palo Alto and then move in with a Facebook ad sales guy was amazing. And then what really catapulted the business is at that time, companies like Zynga building Farmville, and there were a ton of others, Playdom, Playfish, Crowdstar. These guys were raising tons and tons of money to promote their Facebook games. And we were one of the very few companies who had access to the Facebook ads API that could actually optimize their ad spend. So our sales cycles were like a day. So you'd have a gaming company, they would get $10 million of funding, earmarked 5 million for ad spend. And then they would go to Facebook and say, hey, Facebook, we have all this money we wanna spend to grow our game. And they would say, well, Ad Parlor is really good at that. So they would call us and they would be like, okay, where do we send the money? Let's get started. So it was a pretty awesome experience, but that only happened because I was out there and I met all these guys from Facebook and I met all these game developers who were in San Francisco. So I guess, I don't know how much this podcast is supposed to be kind of sharing lessons and stuff. But to me, I would say if you're an entrepreneur, I definitely know that you can build a business anywhere in the world, but you got to spend time out in San Francisco. You got to spend time out in Silicon Valley. Even if you don't want to live there permanently, go there for three months, go there for six months, work out of an incubator, go and network because it's really something quite different and it's going to give you a lot of opportunities. Yeah. And I think even if it's not moving, I think what you said there, even temporarily staying there for maybe a month, three months, right? I think maybe that's their first hurdle because maybe some people can't think of, hey, I need to get up and move. But if in between, there's a small step you can take and just go try it out for a month, like go rent an Airbnb once you get a ticket over there. Sounds like it worked for you. But before you said you weren't making money with Ad Parlor, right? Yeah. Because I want to know how much money you had saved up before you started Ad Parlor and moved out to San Francisco. Yeah. So it wasn't a lot. I don't remember the exact number, but it must have been something like twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000, like just some small amount of money that I had saved. But I was pretty fortunate that I was living with my parents. So I didn't have any real costs. I had rent covered. I had food covered. I owned a car and a cell phone. And that was about it. Definitely would be harder later on in life. So the other kind of 
tip and trick I always tell people is if you want to be an entrepreneur, like the sooner you start, the better, because you have more to lose. There's more opportunity cost as you get older. It might've sound like luck that you end up moving in with this Facebook ad guy, but I would think most people might just think, oh, okay, I'll wait till tomorrow to meet the guy. But you took the initiative that you're like, no, I'm going to do it now. Instead of just waiting and letting him decide. If you didn't take that step, then who knows? Maybe you think you're going to wait two days and he ends up picking the other guy and then it doesn't happen because you weren't being proactive. Yeah. And I think that I've been quote unquote, very lucky over the past five to 10 years in my entrepreneurial career. When I really think about it, it's not just luck. It's working hard. And then when an opportunity comes, you're ready to take advantage of it. So I think a lot of people are probably lucky as well, but opportunities present themselves and they either don't realize it or they don't take advantage of it. And then they're like, oh, I'm not a lucky guy. So I don't think it's just about luck, some of it, but it's about taking advantage of opportunities when they come to you. I had that opportunity to move into the Facebook sales guy and I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. And there were many, many other stories along the way, similar types of situations. So you talked about your first travel to Africa, kind of in between those. So when you moved to San Francisco, were you still doing a lot of traveling? Because I know we talked about in the pre-interview that you're a big traveler, and maybe that's what kind of motivated you to start Snap Travel as well. Yes, I've always been a big traveler in between school terms, summer breaks, and I've always tried to do as much as I can. I've been to Australia. I've been all throughout Southeast Asia. I've been to South America. I've been to the Middle East. I've been pretty much to 30, 40 different countries. I just love it. I think traveling is a great, great experience. I think trying to immerse yourself into different cultures and meeting different people is just phenomenal. It's just a lot of fun. And I don't think I'm ever going to kind of get over that. But going to Africa was actually something quite a bit different. I really wanted to just do something different and I wanted to help out. And I actually went with an organization called Youth Challenge International. And I don't know if they even exist anymore, but at that time, what they did is they sent 12 Canadians at a time to a remote village and we would work with the local village and kind of, we would learn about a topic and then teach all the local youth about a topic. So we did HIV AIDS, we did female rights, we did microenterprising, we did all these topics and we would basically learn and then kind of teach them for a week. And then they would go into even smaller villages and teach them. And it was just an amazing experience. I was living in the house with a local family and there was limited electricity. There was no running water. Um, I was showering out of a bucket and I did this for two, three months. It was just such an eye-opening experience. I mean, you go there and the first week you're thinking, what is this? How am I going to live here for two, three months? But after a while, and when you kind of get into it, you realize that this is fine. Like you just got to get used to it. And that became the new normal. It was actually odd for me when I came back home and I took a normal shower. Any of that helped motivate you when starting Ad Parlor as well? I mean, I think for me, when I went to do that volunteer trip, like I mentioned earlier, when I came back to my job at Bell Canada, it just made me realize how meaningless my job was because I was doing something so meaningful. And then I came back and some annoying manager was trying to tell me that the shade of blue on this <laughs> website is off, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, I don't care <laughs> at all. Um, it should be dark blue, not light blue. <laughs> yeah. So I just really didn't care to do that anymore. And I think just traveling just really opens your eyes and just gives you new perspective on life and volunteer work even more so. If you can kind of bring yourself down to that level where you're living with a local family and living in a local village and just really feeling what they feel. And, and also there's this huge, I will say there's a pretty big 
misconception if someone hasn't gone to do this kind of work. And generally, a lot of times you watch TV and you see commercials and you see everyone looks really sad and please help us, please donate money. But what I found is that most of the people I encountered were actually very, very happy. Even though they had very little, they didn't have much food, they didn't have much clothing, they didn't have any money. And obviously, there are things we could do to help them, to educate them. And there's things you can do to build wells and build houses and do things like that. But overall, they were very happy people. And it was a really positive experience. Yeah, I guess I was just trying to work it into if some of that was motivation as well to maybe you want to grow a business to give back or anything of that nature, because we all have different motivations at different points in life. So yeah, and I do. And here's the thing. I mean, I have a pretty interesting philosophy on giving back. And my thought is that if you're going to be effective at giving back, you have to actually make a shitload of money, like a lot. Because if I were to build a business and let's say all said and done, I had 10 million or 20 million or 50 million, that's actually not a lot of money to really make an impact. I think you need to kind of do initiatives that are going to continue to grow in itself. So for example, if I had $10 million and I said, okay, I'm going to donate it and I'm going to go build 50 wells across Africa, that's great. And that's probably going to help them quite a bit and it's going to help those local people, but there is still kind of limited impact. Whereas if you can sort of have a lot more money, you can do very interesting things. Like you can start a new company that does R&D for actually converting water to be cleaner. And you can make a lot more impact if you can do things like that. I definitely want to give back and any money I make from staff travel. In fact, most of it will probably go to giving back, but it just needs to be done in the most efficient way possible. Let's talk about how you're going to be able to do that and a little bit more about Ad Parlor and how you're able to grow from the bedroom that you moved into in San Francisco and just take us along the stages, if you don't mind, year by year and kind of what age you were at those times. Yeah, sure. So let's go back to Ad Parlor. So I moved in with this Facebook ad sales guy. We got access to the Facebook ads API, which allowed us to programmatically create ads, delete ads, change bids, do all this stuff. And what happened is, like I said, we were one of the very few companies that had access to the ads API. And we actually decided to focus on gaming companies. So all these companies would get a shitload of money and then they would go to Facebook and Facebook would send them to us. And all of a sudden we went from not doing much to doing a million dollars a month in managing ad spend. And then we went to two million a month and three million. All of a sudden we were managing two, three million dollars a month. At that time, margins were actually quite high. So we were making, call it 15 to 20% margins. So all of a sudden we were kicking off a few hundred thousand dollars a month in gross profit. And we're like, okay, well, this is great. We have a lot of money now to play with. So this was kind of all happened in kind of the six to eight months, which I was out in the Valley. And then that made... That seems pretty amazing. Did you have any expectation of that? And were you the only guy or you still have a partner who was up in Canada? Yeah, Christoph was still out here in Canada. So he was coding away and I was out there kind of hustling and talking to people. And so it was 50-50? Yeah, 50-50. And that's a whole other kind of side topic. But I genuinely and truly believe that if you're ever running a startup with somebody, it has to be 50-50. doesn't really matter about anything else. Like you need to be 50-50 because that's always going to cause a rift later on. I've seen people who say, oh, I'm more experienced than you. 
or I'm bringing some money to the table, let's do 60-40 or something like that. That's not a good idea. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was 50-50. It was literally myself and Kristaps. I actually had at that time hired one of my friends and he was helping out as well. So it was kind of three of us, but he was also in Toronto and still very, very young, figuring things out, not really knowing what we were doing. But then when things started to kick off and we started to make some money, it was, okay, well, now we have to actually turn this into a real business. So at that time, I decided to move back to Toronto and get some office space. So it was myself, my co-founder, Kristaps, and my friend who had hired Ali. And then we just started hiring people. And we hired another kind of account manager guy, Gareth. We hired a developer, Romy. And then we just started to hire more and more people and started to build up the business that way. So basically, we realized six to eight months that this is a real business. We actually hit Obviously, everyone calls product market fit. And we decided to turn it into a real company. So move back to Toronto, opened an office and just started hiring people. And at that point, then we just started hiring people kind of one person a month-ish started to grow the company. How about that first guy that you bring on who's not a partner? Can you tell us, like, did you just give him a salary? Because that could be a little bit hard for some people who are starting their own business. It's like, okay, I've got a partner, but then should I just pay this guy a regular salary? Should I give him like a percentage of net profit or what? Yeah. So that first person we hired was actually a good friend of mine. His name was Ali and he was kind of in between jobs trying to figure out what to do. And he did receive a modest salary at the time. But when we initially hired him, we weren't making much money, but he did get equity. And actually every ad parlor employee had a piece of equity. And the same thing in this new company, everyone at Snap Travel has some equity as well. Is this actual equity or is it like a percentage of revenue? No, it's stock options. Okay. So there's stock options which vest over a certain amount of time or they vest if something happens like we IPO or we get acquired. That's not a percentage of revenue. That is something that you could potentially do, but percentage of revenue doesn't really make sense for the companies we're running. Yeah, some companies do it and it's not a good idea because they don't care about the expenses. <laughs> yeah, it's hard when you don't even know what you have and you don't know like, oh, I'm going to give you 5% of revenue, but if all of a sudden in six months, you're making $5 million a month. <laughs> <Right>. you know, <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. You have to have a talk. <laughs> yeah, you have to have a talk. What makes more sense is once you actually have a real company and a real sales cycle and you can predict if I add X sales guy, he's going to add this much revenue and then you can pay out like a sales commission, but like having a percentage of revenue for the overall company when you don't even know what you have and you're pivoting just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I guess it was just trying to figure out that first person who's actually not a partner and trying to give them some incentive. And then, because again, like you were saying, you don't really necessarily know what you have. Yeah. So I didn't know if there was a certain way to go about if you had any ideas or concepts or best way to do that, if I was in a similar situation, say I have a 50-50 partner and bring someone in, should I just pay them straight salary? Because it didn't seem like you had much money yet. Yeah, initially we didn't have much money. So stock options is definitely the way to go. So what we did is you kind of basically take what stocks that are available and then you create an employee option pool. So what ended up happening was myself and Chris Ops were all of a sudden 45, 45, and then 10% was allocated as an employee option pool. Okay. And then you just kind of allocate X amount to the first employee. And then as each employee comes on, it's kind of less and less. And obviously it's a super key hire, then they could get more than the last employee. If you Google it, there's a lot of ways to structure it, but essentially it's the best way to do it. You have an employee option pool and you allocate options as it makes sense. Okay. Well, so let's talk about, did anything go wrong over these years? Because it sounds like after eight months, nine months... <laughs> You were significantly profitable and like starting hiring and it didn't seem like anything had gone negative yet so far. I think that's, <laughs> that's not fair. I mean, there, there's, <laughs> I'm just I, asking. yeah, yeah. So I would say I am very thankful for the way things went. Mm -hmm. Generally, I think that there were a lot more positives than there were negatives. 
I think, like I kind of said earlier, I got pretty lucky and maybe that's just hard work meeting opportunity. Because when I look back and I'm like, shit, I'm really lucky I did this. And I'm really lucky that this worked out. And I'm really lucky I went to this dinner and met this person, right? And I'm really lucky I got introduced to this guy who ended up doing this. I think a lot of things did work out, but there were definitely some frustrating times. So in that kind of first year where I was living in my parents' basement, it was not easy. And you don't really know what you have. You're not making any money. Your friends are looking at you like, what are you doing, <laughs> right? Like, why don't you go get a job? Like, what are you doing sitting at home trying to do this Facebook app ad network? Like, that doesn't make any sense. I don't even understand what you're doing. I kind of glossed over this part a bit, but before I had moved out to San Francisco when I was kind of working at home, we actually tried to raise some money. We met with some VCs and we met with some angel investors and there was like a Toronto Maple Leaf angel group. No one would give us a dime. <laughs> yeah, we weren't able to raise any money at all. That thankfully actually worked out because when we sold that parlor, it was completely bootstrapped. There were no investors involved. It was just myself, Christophs, and all the employees. I and mean, that was a good payout for all of us. I'm glad you're able to catch up and see those old group calls and those are definitely helping. Yeah, and probably the most helpful one has been with a gal that did PR. Megan Bennett. Yes, yes. Like I listened to that whole thing with all the people's questions and her ideas. And I like how, you know, you got her to tell more stories than just the regular interview. So I've listened to a number of podcasts and I actually, the guy that runs US staffing services, I've been talking to him about doing some work with him, with one of my businesses in the States. So I've linked in with people because of it as well. So it's been fantastic, like the, the kind of network you get. And I decided to increase my subscription to gain access to your extra Patreon content. As you've said in some of your adverts, it's paying it forward. I mean, obviously it's, it's hard for you to, to monetize what you're doing on a mass scale. So I decided it would be a good investment to get access to this stuff and join some of the group calls uh, with the other Patreon members and get access to better content. Well, so what drove you during this whole time? Because it had to be something if you were at home Maybe your friends aren't necessarily making fun of you. Maybe they're joking around or whatever. But <laughs> if you're in your parents' basement in Canada yeah. during winter, just like grinding away, there had to be some internal motivation. I think it was just fun. Mm -hmm. I don't know how else to describe it. Like, I think that it was just knowing that every minute of work I put in was actually building a company myself versus when I was working at Bell Canada, every minute I put in was doing nothing for anybody. And it's hard to explain. It's just this intrinsic internal level of motivation that even though we weren't really doing much and weren't making money, things were still kind of working. Like we would build this ad network and then we would contact an advertiser and they'd be like, okay, yeah, sure. We'll try it out. And we contact the publisher and they'd be like, okay, yeah, we'll put your ads on our app. And like, it wasn't doing much, but like people were responsive and it was fun. I can relate to that because even saying with the podcast, what I'm doing, I mean, I haven't made any money really off of it yet, but it's been fun to me compared to what I was doing the last four or five years because it's different. And every time I'm doing something different within the podcast, whether it's like marketing or trying new editing tactics or hiring someone else to help us, I'm working my ass off, but it's fun. It's not that, oh, I've got to make a million dollars this year or anything of that nature, or you know, I've got to prove this guy wrong. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. sometimes I do have those all these combined kind of help motivate me and all, but in general, my motivation with doing the podcast is just meet people like you and hopefully the people listening can actually learn from your stories and versus what I was doing before. I didn't have that same, like people calling me or texting me like, Hey, yeah, I learned something from that podcast. That was pretty cool. You know, so that 
kind of feels good as well. So, oh yeah, for sure. And everything you do just builds on the last thing you did, right? You talked about trying marketing tactics. You try something and maybe it doesn't work and you try something else, maybe it doesn't work. And then you try something and it, and it works a bit and you're like, oh shit, that kind of worked. Let me try a different version of that or a better version of that. And it's exciting to just build everything and build your skill set and build the business. And you know that everything you do is you're building your own equity and your own kind of company value. And yeah, people might think that's lucky, but really it's because you didn't see how many hours I put into trying all these other things in every weekend. Exactly. So what was your work life like during this time at Parlor? I mean, were you just doing the normal nine to five or you working weekends? What was that like? Yeah. So, so this is actually a really interesting topic because when I started at Parlor, I was single and all I did was work. So what I used to tell people is when people are running, I guess, a side project or startup, it's kind of like you have all these things that get in the way and you have like birthdays and events and vacations and all this stuff. And then you try and fit in time to kind of work on your startup. I was actually the complete opposite. I pretty much worked nonstop. Um, and luckily I was single and I was young and had unlimited amounts of energy. So all I did was work. I can't even tell you how many hours a week. It was just like all my waking hours other than eating and sleeping were working. And then maybe once a week, maybe a Friday or Saturday night, I take like a few hours off and that was it. I'd wake up in the morning and opening my eyes, my laptop would be open. I'd take breaks to eat and I would kind of work until two, three in the morning until I fell asleep and I closed my laptop. In hindsight, it was kind of nuts, but it was okay because I was single and I had unlimited energy and unlimited excitement and it was amazing. And I just kind of worked nonstop. And in fact, it was funny when we moved into an office and we started to have four or five, six employees. I actually dreaded long weekends because I was like, oh man, it's a long weekend. No one's going to be working. And I was going to send out emails to you know advertisers and partners and they're not going to answer me until Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> that sucks, right? So I actually didn't like long weekends or weekends in general because I was just nonstop working and I couldn't understand why everybody else wasn't working. And then you fast forward to now, I'm now 36. I'm married. I actually have a kid. I have a newborn who's six months. And it's a completely different game. Because now, A, I don't have unlimited energy. And then B, I want to spend time with my wife and I want to spend time with my kid. And I can't work unlimited hours. But I guess I've been working a lot smarter now. And I've been still getting a lot done with the time restrictions that I have. I would encourage anyone who is single and has the energy to take advantage of it and just work as damn hard as you can. There's obviously a difference between working hard and working smart. And obviously, I'm working a lot smarter now. But when you're that young and you're just getting started, you're probably not working that smart. So you kind of have to make up for it by just putting in the hours. So spend as much time as you can and just grind it out. And yeah, you're going to miss some birthdays and you're going to miss some family events. And a lot of your friends and family may not even understand. And I had a couple of friends get pissed at me and they were like, yo, you missed my birthday. And it's like, sorry, dude, I'm working. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you know, and then five years later, when Ad Parlor gets sold, maybe they realize like he was working for a reason. He was building something. It's a sacrifice you have to make. I think a lot of people may feel bad that they miss certain things or whatnot, but I didn't really care. I was just like, this is way more fun than anything else. And that was my motivation. So I just worked nonstop. But that being said, as now that I'm older and I'm running this new company and I have a wife and a kid, you realize that there is a way to work smart and balance these two things out. Any suggestions on how you work smarter or how they could, if they're younger, work smarter versus how you used to work? And I think it's important too, like you're saying in the beginning, if you're just working at least hard and long, you figure out that eventually you're going to have to find something else. You don't know what works for you because everything is a little different for everybody. But what has worked for you as far as working smarter? Yeah. So I think I'm in a pretty fortunate position, obviously, with Snap Travel. I mean, we've raised 9.2 million US in funding. We're 
at about 50 employees. So working smarter essentially for me means if I'm doing anything more than a few hours a week, I hire someone to do that job. And I think that I've really been able to take a step back. So I used to be very much a hands-on doer kind of guy, and I still can be and do when it's necessary. Always think about what you can offload. Once you get to a company of the size, generally you're just kind of in a way, a big coordinator and a big unblocker, and then you're making strategic decisions. But you should try and offload as much as you can, hire as many people as you can, and just offload things. I will say something else, which may be a little bit counterintuitive. So what a lot of people do is hire people for things that they're not good at, right? So you know, I'm not really good at marketing, so let me go hire a marketing person. And that obviously makes sense. You want to hire an expert for things you're not good at. But I think a lot of times the mistake people make is that they don't hire people for things that they are good at. Let me kind of just talk about that a little bit more. So I myself have obviously a background in Facebook advertising, and I'm really good at Facebook advertising because I know it in and out, and I ran an entire business for three years on Facebook ad optimization. So now with Snap Travel, I could be running those Facebook ads myself, but that would take me two, three hours a week to do. And yeah, I'm really good at it, but I've realized that because I'm good at it, I'd be good at hiring someone to do that. I'd be good at coaching them on how to do that. I'd be good at identifying when they're doing a good job or when they're doing a bad job. So even for something like Facebook ads, where you would think, oh, we don't need to hire someone for Facebook ads because I'm the expert at that. I still go and I hire someone to run marketing and I hand over Facebook ads to that person. But it's actually really easy for me to manage that person. It's easy for me to give them tips and tricks. And it's easy for me to know if they're doing a good job or not because I know it so well. So even if you're really good at something, it doesn't necessarily mean that you should be spending your time or your hours on that. You can still hire someone to do it. And it's actually pretty beneficial because you'll know if they're doing a good job or not. That makes sense. And you just mentioned how much you've raised over the past two years since you started it. How about we just talk about Ad Parlor, where that grew to, how many employees you had, and how much you ended up selling for it, and your transition from Ad Parlor to Snap Travel. Yeah, sure. So Ad Parlor, when we sold the company, it was about 20 people. We never disclosed the acquisition price, but it was a healthy amount. That was the end of 2014? Yes. 2008, I started Ad Parlor. I sold it actually in 2011, but then I stayed on with Ad Knowledge for three years until 2014. After we sold the company to Ad Knowledge in 2011, we were just 20 people in Toronto. But as I stayed on for those next three years, we actually grew it out to be about 100 people across eight countries. So we had offices in San Francisco and Shanghai and Sao Paulo and Paris and London. And it was pretty awesome. So going through that experience of being part of a bigger organization and going from 20 people to 100 people around the world was pretty awesome. I guess that's perfect for you too. If you like traveling, did you get to travel a lot? Oh yeah. I got to travel a lot. I got to basically go to all our offices around the world and just go into meetings with sales guys and help them close deals. And it was a great three years. But after those three years, I decided, you know, enough's enough. I mean, even by the end of it, I would say the last year I wasn't doing too much work anyways. I was just kind of being more of an advisor and traveling around and helping sales guys close big deals and managing the biggest relationships. And then after that, like I said, I took about a year off, did some more traveling, got to actually spend some quality time with my wife. And then that's when I decided, okay, I need to start something else. And before you talk about Snap Travel again, with all your traveling experiences, do you have some suggestions for someone who hasn't traveled at all or maybe some of your favorite places or experiences? I know it's hard to pick one, but maybe just a few that you would suggest. It sounds like you've been pretty much everywhere. It really depends on the stage of your life you're in. I mean, some of my favorites 
Iceland, I think, is absolutely beautiful. If you want to just go and have a peaceful time, and if you like nature, you should definitely go out there. Lots of great hikes and waterfalls and stuff. When I was younger, I went to Brazil for Carnival. I went to Rio. That was a great kind of party experience. I went to Vietnam and I did a food tour. So the food there is absolutely great. And we did kind of a 10-day food tour where we went along the coast of Vietnam and tried all these different types of food. I think Southeast Asia in general, Thailand is very touristy. So I would probably go to Cambodia or go to Laos or go to some of those places. Obviously, India and China are two countries you got to visit. They're both amazing, beautiful countries on their own. Hopefully that's good enough. <laughs> that works. Yeah, obviously it depends on if you're looking for something maybe nature-like or more relaxing versus party-like or versus maybe if you're traveling and doing business at the same time, like what you're trying to get out of the travel. Yeah. Going to Barcelona when I'm 21 and single is very different than going to Barcelona now with a wife and a kid, right? And it's actually a very, very different experience. You're seeing different things. You're experiencing different things. So I used to be of the philosophy of like, oh, I don't want to go back to the same country again because there's so many other places to see. But then if you go when you're 21 and you go when you're 35, they're literally two completely different experiences and completely different perspectives. So you should definitely go visit a country again if you're at a different stage in your life. And I guess in between Ad Parlor and Snap Travel and year of traveling, if you will, you were at 500 startups as well? Yeah. So that's something where I just wanted to give back a bit. Yeah. Tell us what that is, because I don't think many people know. And maybe you can give us some things that you've learned or when you've been mentoring people, usually what they run into as entrepreneurs. 500 Startups is a very popular startup incubator, accelerator. A bunch of entrepreneurs apply. And if they get accepted, they get some funding from 500 Startups and they actually get some office space and they go through a pretty intensive three to four month program where there's advisors and there's investors and it's really high energy and trying to get them to really grow their business. So for anyone who's new to the startup world, I definitely encourage you to apply to 500 startups. And there's also other good ones out there. Obviously, Y Combinator is a common one that a lot of people know about. But I encourage you. So I guess a little bit of a step back. I talked earlier on about moving to Silicon Valley and moving to San Francisco. A lot of people may be like, okay, but what do I do? I'm just going to be doing the same thing, but in a different location. I think one of the best things you can do is go apply to one of those startup accelerators or incubators, because then that gives you a place to work and a place to mingle with other entrepreneurs and meet investors and meet advisors and all that stuff. So for me, being an advisor in 500 startups, I was actually an advisor in their San Francisco office. So what happens is while I was living there, this is later on, obviously, after I had sold that parlor, but and anytime I'm out in San Francisco, I essentially just go in there and put office hours in. And I put office hours in and any startup company that's part of the 500 Startups Incubator can go and just book me and just chat. So most of the time, people have questions about Facebook ads. They're like, hey, I have this company and I'm running ads and it's not working for me. Can you help me? And I'll sit there and I'll literally be like, okay, open up your log into your ads account. Let me see what you're doing and I'll try and help them out. Other times, it's people who are looking for fundraising advice. So now that I've been through the process of raising money, they're saying, can you look at my pitch deck? Can you tell me what you think? It's been kind of a combination of things. But in general, everyone's super high quality. It's really interesting to see different businesses. And even for me, it's a learning experience. In a way, it's like, oh, let's see what the kids are doing these days. So right, <laughs> Now you're an old man. Yeah, I'm an old man, right? But And they come in, they're like, oh, we're using this new analytics tracking software. And we're using this new program to automatically send out emails and collect leads or whatever it is. And it's like, this is really cool. Maybe this is something I can apply to my business. So it's been a bit of me just giving back to the startup community and trying to help out as much as I can. 
but at the same time, it's also been a good learning experience for me. Since you have so much experience in the Facebook ads, maybe not even just ads in general, but what do you see for the future of Facebook? I think they're going to continue to do well and they're going to continue to be a great company. I mean, personally, I have quite a bit of Facebook stock, which I purchased pretty much at the IPO level. So I've obviously done quite well on that. And I'm going to continue to hold because I think they're a great company. The management's great. Their leadership's great. I think the acquisitions they've made have been super smart. Obviously, they acquired Instagram for a billion dollars and everyone thought they were crazy. And now it's looking like one of the greatest tech acquisitions of all time. And then they went ahead and acquired WhatsApp for, I believe it was 18 billion or something like that. And again, people said, oh, Mark Zuckerberg's crazy. But now that it's been a few years, people are saying, holy shit, that's actually a good acquisition. And over time, it again, will probably be one of the better tech acquisitions of all time. So I think I have a lot of faith in the company there. I've kind of built a career off of building on the Facebook platform and having a good relationship there. I'm definitely long on Facebook and I think they're going to continue to do well. What do you see the future of Snap Travel and you working there and everything beyond that? Yeah, for Snap Travel, I mean, we've grown very, very aggressively since we started the company and since we've raised that money. We're now driving millions of dollars a month in hotel bookings. So for us, and for me personally, I want this to be a billion dollar company, like a billion dollar revenue minimum type of company, because that's the only way it kind of makes sense for me to go and build another. I mean, Ad Parlor was great and it was a pretty big company. It was a pretty big exit. But for me to go build another Ad Parlor scale company doesn't really move the needle for me. So for me, for this to be meaningful, it needs to be something that's 10x, right? It needs to be kind of a billion dollar business. So that's the goal. And I don't think that's unreasonable. I mean, the travel vertical is absolutely massive. So the best way to think about it is right now, we book, call it a thousand room nights every single day. And booking.com does 1.5 million room nights every single day. So if you just take a step back and think about that, like that's unbelievable. I mean, the average stay is around 2.2 nights. So you're talking about you know, 750,000 to a million bookings every single day. And that's just booking.com. So they're, you know, 10,000 times bigger than us. And we're already, what I think, a decent size. So the travel space is just so massive that it's quite possible to build a billion dollar company. So that kind of just on the revenue and the growth side. But more importantly is the technology side and the shift in consumer behavior. So you obviously hear a lot about natural language processing and machine learning and AI and all this stuff. And the goal and the dream is that you should be able to book the perfect hotel at the best price instantly. So you should be able to just talk to your device and say, hey, Alexa, or hey, Google, I need a hotel in New York next weekend near my office with fast Wi-Fi. And we should know your preferences. We know who you are. We know your credit card. We know everything. And we just say, all right, the perfect hotel for you is the Marriott Hotel in Times Square. It's $2.99 a night. Would you like me to book that for you? And you say yes, and it's booked. And that can happen over voice. It can even happen over messaging. You can message that and we send you the perfect hotel. You swipe your thumb with Apple Pay or Facebook payments and your book. But in order for that to happen, you first need to trust Snap Travel. You need to trust that they're actually going to get you the best hotel at the best price. And that takes time. And it takes time for people to trust Snap Travel. It takes time for people to change their behavior because people are used to spending hours and hours researching hotels and opening 100 tabs and going back day after day to usually finally come back to booking the same hotel they initially thought they wanted to book. So it takes time to do that. So for us, we want to change consumer behavior. We want booking a hotel to be as easy as messaging a trusted friend. 
If you have a really good friend who you trust, who knows you, and you say, hey, can you help me book a hotel? And they say, okay, I did all the research. Here's the perfect hotel for you. At that point, you'd probably say, okay, I'm going to go and book it. I trust that they did the research. They found the best price. They know me well, that kind of stuff. So that's eventually where we want to get to. Give them the basic parameters, swipe their thumb, and they're good to go. Do they go to Snap Travel on Facebook? How do they get started? Sure, yeah. So the best way to get started is to open Facebook Messenger in the same way you would search for a friend. Search for Snap Travel, click on a Get Started button, and you'll be able to get rocking. So you'll be able to just start chatting right away and tell us what you want. And you'll go through that interesting process where you're chatting with a bot, and we're going to ask you a few questions, and then we're going to pick hotels for you. And I think maybe the best way, because you're saying they need to build that trust. I mean, maybe they have their computer up and they look on what, maybe like hotels.com in the same city and then try it out on your phone. And if you have the better price, then you're looking at it. And then that's that trust building, right? Exactly. And that's what happens, right? So obviously the first time you use it, the second time you use it, even the third, fourth time you use it, you're price comparing and you're looking around and you're doing research and you're doing all your own thing. And then there comes kind of a turning point where after you've booked the fourth or fifth hotel, Every single time I go to Snap Travel, they give me an amazing recommendation. It ends up being the hotel I book anyways, and it's at the best price or equal to the price that I see everywhere else. Eventually, people get to the point where they open Snap Travel and they're making bookings within 30 seconds. They pick up their phone, they chat, they get a recommendation, they click, they book. And it takes time to build that trust. But we expect that for the first one, two, three, four bookings, people are going to still do their own research and their own comparisons. But we hope that over time, we end up being the default and you trust us enough that you can make a booking within 30 seconds. Is Facebook Messenger the only platform that you see like growing like this in the future? Or could you see maybe, I don't know if Instagram would have such thing or LinkedIn have a messenger type of bot service that you'd be on? What's your thoughts on that? So right now it's been, like I said, primarily SMS and Facebook Messenger. The next obvious platform would be WhatsApp. So WhatsApp, if you kind of Google it and they publicly talk about it, they are working on a sort of business chat platform and eventually it will be something that they open up. So WhatsApp would be the next obvious platform for us. There's also regional specific platforms. For example, Viber is really big in the Middle East. So it's something we've looked at. Obviously, WeChat's really big in China. Line is big in Japan. So there are some region-specific messaging apps that we've been looking at. But right now, I mean, with Facebook Messenger and SMS, that covers most of the globe. <laughs> yeah, I could definitely see that. I mean, obviously, you want to focus on one thing and do it really well. I'm just predicting your future, what you see, and you think it's WhatsApp would be the future? Yeah, I think WhatsApp would be and WeChat would be two of the platforms we look at. And then I kind of mentioned voice. Voice is also starting to get more and more interesting. So working with Amazon to do a better Alexa integration or working with Google to do a better Google Home integration. And that's actually really interesting because people are using voice more and more. People are using assistance more and more. So that is another area of growth for us. Looking back on your story and your ride so far, do you have any other like closing words or pieces of advice for someone getting started as an entrepreneur, or maybe they're already got their nine to five and are thinking about doing their side business? I would say that you just got to go and do it. I know a lot of people who kind of want to be entrepreneurs and they have their full-time job and they always come up to me and say, Hey, Hussein, I have this great like startup idea. And I'm like, okay, great. Well, just go and do it. Right. <laughs> and the reality is that no matter what you do, no matter what you start, what business you end up building is never going to be your initial idea. No one who like takes a shower and a light bulb goes off and comes up with this great idea and then go builds exactly that and millions of people come in and use it. That's not how startups work. What works is you pick kind of an industry or a space that's interesting to you and it's a big market 
you find smart people to work with and you just run like crazy and try a whole bunch of different things in that space until something clicks. That's how startup businesses work. So when someone comes to me and says, oh, I have this great idea. What do you think of this idea? I actually don't really care what your idea is. I care about, okay, well, who are you working with? Your team? Do you have a co-founder? I care about how big is the market? How big is the space? Like Facebook advertising was a big space. Travel is a very big space. And then that's it. And then just go and do it. Whatever idea you have, go and do it. You're going to pivot. It's not going to work. You're going to try something else. It's not going to work. And eventually something that you guys do, smart people do together in a big space will work. And then that's when you can really grow the business. I think that's the important thing that I think you harped on is actually doing something. I think now, and I just had talked with a recent guest about this, is that there's just so much knowledge. Everyone just wants to research all the time. I mean, it's great that over the last 10 or 15 years, I have Google where I can find the answer literally to almost everything. But at the same point in time, you need to know when to stop and just start doing and testing different things. Because if you don't ever start doing, nothing's ever going to happen. Of course. Yep. hundred percent. You just got to go out there and do it and do it and fail and do it and fail and do it and eventually succeed. And you can Google yourself till you go blue in the face and you can Google yourself and convince yourself that any idea is really good or any idea is really bad. So you can be like, oh, I have this idea. Oh, but I researched it for a month and I found that there's all these competitors. It doesn't make any sense for me to do this. But that's not how you should be thinking. You should just go and do it and see what happens. Yeah. And plus, probably if it took you a month to figure out that there are people doing it, then they probably aren't very good at marketing it. Or <laughs> Right? Yeah, so that's true. I definitely agree that eventually you just have to start doing it. I think it's smart and calculated and researched up to a point. And then you got to say go or no go on it and then go to a different idea if you're not going to do it. So yep. It's definitely about doing someone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach you? You can find me on Twitter. So it's Hussein underscore Fazl. You can tweet at me and I'd be glad to respond. Well, thank you very much for doing the interview. We really appreciate it. All right. Awesome. If you're looking for other tech-based interviews, then consider these episodes. Episode 74 with Ryan Buckley of Twofer, where he tells you, should you invest in sales or marketing? Episode 79 with Brad Martineau, where he talks about getting kicked out of his family business. Episode 82 with Carl Taylor, where he talks about automating your business. Or try episode 85 with Jonathan Cogley, where he talks about building a software startup. In other news, if you want to leave us feedback about the show, give us a call or text us on our new hotline. Simply dial 1-305-985-3469. The best comments, questions, or feedback will be shared on a future episode, so don't be scared to get creative. As always, thanks for tuning in and sharing the podcast with your friends, family, and loved ones.